six and seven-year-olds, welcome. You are in my sermon today. <laughs> Glad you guys are here, everybody. Thank you. My name is Jay Popovich. Uh, I am a member here at Covenant Life. Uh, CLC has been my home and my family for, gosh, these last 12 years, and I'm always grateful to be able to preach God's word to you. Um, I also happen to be the last person to preach before uh, my beloved, well-traveled, well-rested, closest friend, Justin Perry, will be up here next week. So welcome back. Praise God for you guys and for the gift of being able to rest these past couple months. So let's go to the Lord and pray. Ask for his grace. Father, thank you for today. God, we know that you orchestrate all events in our lives and that it is not by accident or by merely routine that this morning we are here. We trust that it is in your loving care and great wisdom that you would have us be in this place this morning to hear from you, to be with your people, to be encouraged. And so, God, we ask that you would magnify yourself through the preaching of your word. God, that you would tune our ears to hear from you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most cliche things a parent can say is, man, kids grow up so fast. I have three kids that just seem to get bigger every day. I get slower and older uh, by the moment. I've noticed that the speed at which they grow, sometimes it outpaces the kind of instruction that I give them. Like the other day I started the grill and I'm like, Jack, don't touch the grill. And he's, he's like, Dad, I'm almost a teenager. I don't got to touch the grill. Or more recently, I, I found myself doing this when, I, you know, I take a lot of naps now that I'm, I'm getting older. And, I'm, you know, my daughter, Harper, she's nine. She wanted to kind of like hang out on the front porch by herself, and I wanted to go in and sleep. And I, I was like, okay, you can do this, you're nine, I'm gonna go inside. But then I like, I peeked my head back out and I said, Harper, you know not to talk to strangers, right? She's like, Dad, I'm nine years old, I know not to talk to strangers. But all I could think about as a father is a sketchy van with those soaped up windows rolling past my house, enticing my daughter with candy. And for the Apostle Paul, that parental fear wasn't a possibility, it was a reality. You see, the Galatians were his spiritual children. He had led them to faith with all the intense emotions that a parent has for a child. And the picture set before us in this letter now is haunting. These strangers had rolled up to the Galatians and seeing them rest on the porch of gospel freedom, they would entice his children away with the allure of religious self-achievement, only to bring them into slavery. Up until this point in the letter, Paul has expressed his grave concern for the Galatians and has begun to contrast works of the law with faith in Christ alone. Religion versus gospel. What we try to do ourselves to find favor with God and what God has achieved on our behalf through the person and work of Jesus. And now in chapter 3, it's as if Paul reaches through the letter, grabs them by the collar and says, listen, don't take the bait. I know what they're offering appeals to your flesh, but it will be to your peril. 
In our six verses this morning, Paul hits them with a series of five emotionally charged rhetorical questions. And the use of these questions will pull them in closer and prompt them to reflect on Paul's ministry to them, get them to recall their actual conversion experience, to, to jolt them back to a right belief in the gospel. So if it helps you to follow along this morning, these five questions will be the five points of the sermon. Question number one, verse one, Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Can you hear it? Paul is agonizing over their situation. And he tells them straight up, you guys are fools. When you hear this sharp criticism, you might think, man, that's not loving. I can't believe the Apostle Paul would say that. But remember Jesus? He called his disciples fools on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is speak this kind of rebuke into somebody's life. It may wound them, but it may end up saving them in the end. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs 27, 6. And Paul was more than a friend to the Galatians. He was so invested in their spiritual well-being that chapter 4, verses 19 says, he was in anguish over their faith. He was in anguish over the faith of the Galatians. He wasn't criticizing their intelligence, but he was calling out their startling lack of spiritual discernment. They couldn't see that they were being led astray. You see, the Galatians had heard the truth of the gospel from Paul. His presentation of the gospel was so vivid in public. If you look at the second half of verse 1, Paul's like, how could you forget the combination of his preaching and perhaps even his administration of the Lord's Supper was so tangible, so graphic. It was as if Paul led them to the foot of the cross to behold Christ crucified for them. They heard this. They saw this, not physically, but with, with eyes of faith. They received the truth of the gospel. But now that sketchy van was out front, enticing his little children with a different message to snatch away the joy and the freedom that come from trusting Christ alone. They were being bewitched. They were being charmed away by false promises. Paul asked the question, who? Who has bewitched you? And Paul knows the answer to this but he's engaging through sharp rebuke and penetrating questions that they might consider and snap out of this trance of sorts. The Galatians were not victims of a magic spell, but they were misled. They were willing victims who were giving into the appeal of the flesh-pleasing works righteousness of the Judaizers. There is something in our flesh that wants to earn and contribute in order to achieve. And those basic principles may be good at some level, but not when it comes to finding favor with God. 
They gravitated to religious works as a means of finding favor with God, and in doing so, they were drifting from the gospel. They were deserting their Lord, chapter 1, verse 6. The book of Galatians is not only intended for its original recipients, but for the church today. It was recorded and preserved for us. So what do we need to be on guard for? Or maybe who? Who may be charming us away from the faith in Christ alone? In verse 1, the who is singular. And Paul knows that the real enemy in this present evil age, as he describes it in Galatians 1.1, is the bewitcher himself, Satan. The father of lies. The great deceiver. The roaring lion of 1 Peter 1.5. And the threat of God's children believing lies is a threat in every church. Listen to Paul in his letter to the Corinthians about the evil one. 2 Corinthians 11.2. This is what Paul says. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Again, his heart for God's church. He says, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So how about us, covenant life? Where is the false doctrine slipping in among us? Where is the threat of being led astray? And I think we need to start with ourselves. Who are you listening to? Who has your thoughts? My son Brady and I had the opportunity this summer to go kayaking. And uh, we, we were about, I don't know, a couple hundred yards from a bridge. And so I said, let's make this easy. Let's just paddle up to that bridge, check it out, paddle back. We go up, we turn around, you know, I guess paddling left a few times, and boom, it was amazing. Felt the breeze, saw the view. And the problem was when we were idle, we started going backwards because the current was against us. We were drifting away. As Christians, we have to be vigilant, active in our rehearsing and believing the gospel of grace, that Jesus is enough because the prevailing tides in our culture and even our natural desires to perform in order to achieve, they will carry you away. The current against you can even be ever so subtle. And if you're not watchful, a decade goes by and you find that you've drifted from the faith. So let's be active in arming ourselves with the word of God to be tethered to the gospel in our thinking. There's a wonderful selection of books in the bookstall that encourage us in gospel-centered thinking. One of my favorites is uh, Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. It's a little maroon book, but encourages us to 
view all of life through the lenses of the gospel. Let's also be careful to pay attention to one another closely. Uh, a few weeks ago, John Huff said one of the best ways that you can, that we as a church guard and protect and preserve the gospel is through our members' meetings. You know, being prayerful and thoughtful about who we receive into the church and being careful and loving in how we release people from the church and the leaders that we appoint. Um, but there's also another way that we can protect and preserve the gospel, and that's in every time we have a conversation with one another. Whether it's for coffee or your community group meetings, you get to listen to your brothers and sisters and hear what they're thinking about God and themselves and who they are in light of the gospel. And if you hear something that sounds off base, you are a gift to your brother and sister. You can lovingly gospel them back into right thinking. That's a very boots on the ground way to protect and preserve the gospel and guard one another from drifting. So now that Paul has their attention, he asks them question number two. This is point two. And this is also verse two. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul sets them up with this particular question. This question is like the softball question. It's the easy one. Like This is the one they're supposed to get right. It's to jog their memory. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, Galatians, do you remember when the Holy Spirit invaded your life, changed your desires, gave you a love for Christ? Was that because you were doing all the right religious things or because you heard the gospel and believed? Was it religion or gospel that saved you? In Acts chapter 13 through 15, you can read the accounts of Paul and Barnabas heralding the gospel in Galatia. Here's just a snippet of what they were preaching. In chapter 13, verses 32, you could probably follow along yourself here, or just listen to me. This is, what, this is what's recorded. And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. Again, this is what Paul's proclaiming, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed by everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The Galatians, at the time, they were craving this. Because chapter 13, verse 42 says, the people begged that, they, that these things be told to them next Sabbath. Verse 44 of chapter 13 in the book of Acts, this next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In his question, Paul is attempting to jog their memory of his ministry to them, that their salvation wasn't something they earned by adhering to the law or managing a checklist of religious rituals. Rather, it was hearing with faith, they heard and believed. God gave them the ears to hear that what man couldn't do in his own efforts, God did. That our sins have severed us from our creator. That the one whom we were created for to enjoy forever, we rebelled against. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. That the wages of sin is death, both physical 
and spiritual. We deserve the wrath of God because of our sin, and there is nothing that we could do. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus did on our behalf. He paid it all, died on the cross for our sins, absorbing the wrath of God, dead, laid in the tomb, and on the third day, raising from the grave. And how do we lay hold of this gift? Galatians 3.2, hearing with faith. Paul says it this way in Romans 10.17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And through faith, we are then indwelt by the Holy Spirit to give us freedom and resurrection power over sin and death. This is the Holy Spirit that the Galatians received by faith some 2,000 years ago, and so it is today in Tampa and across the world. God saves as people hear the good news of Jesus, turn from their sins, and believe in him. So friend, where do you find yourself this morning? Are you trying to make peace with God on your own terms? Or have you turned from your sins, turned from trying to find favor with God through your own efforts and put your faith and trust in Jesus alone? If you aren't sure where you're at, come find me. Come speak to one of the pastors or any member in this church. They would be happy to listen to you and to walk with you and to help you explore what it means to put all of your trust and faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Martin Luther argued that the only organs of a Christian man are his ears because it's through the hearing of the gospel preach that faith is awakened. So in the minds of the Galatians, the answer to question two was yes. We heard and received the Holy Spirit through faith in the gospel, not through works of the law. And so if question two was the warm-up question, then question three was the zinger, or as I like to call it, the gut punch. Are you so foolish then? Verse three. Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? One commentator puts it this way. Are you so foolish since you have received the spirit as a gift and not as a reward, being saved through your ears, as it were, and not your hands, the things you do, have you gone completely mad? You can see the, the contrasting language in this verse. You have begin versus perfect or complete. You have the spirit and the flesh. They began by receiving and relying on the spirit through the gospel, but now they were trying to maintain and improve upon their own religious works they were trying to work it out in the flesh. Trying to be perfected by the flesh was most certainly alluding to the act of circumcision. But it more broadly signified their religious self-efforts. The equation for the Galatians was becoming faith in Jesus plus my actions equals salvation. But you see, to put your faith 
into anything in addition to Jesus is to not really have faith in Jesus at all. To supplement Jesus is to supplant Jesus, said many theologians. To add to him is to discard him altogether. The thing in this question in verse 3 is Paul saying this, Galatians, somewhere along the way you began to believe that Jesus wasn't enough for you. That his shed blood wasn't powerful enough to free you from all of your sins. Someone has bewitched you. You don't begin in the spirit and finish in the flesh. Rather, Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What's interesting here, too, is to consider the fact that the Galatians, they weren't primarily Jewish believers. They were Gentile believers. They wouldn't have been reverting back to the law because they never really trusted in it. But it was the underlying religious self-effort, as Paul says in Galatians 4.9, trusting in the, quote, worthless elementary principles and religious observances. You see, this idea of earning to achieve, it runs deep in all of us. Everything in our culture is you perform and then you get the verdict. Performance leads to verdict. Was I good enough? Did I do enough? Whether it's the job interview or the dance recital or even how I view getting into heaven to be with God forever. Tim Keller says, do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? The atheist might say that they get their self-image from being a good person. So they try to be a good person and hope eventually they will get a verdict that confirms they are a good person. For the Buddhist too, performance leads to the verdict. If you are a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. All this means that every day you are in the courtroom, every day you are on trial, and that is the problem. But in Christianity, it's different. For the Christian, it's not about our performance. It's about Jesus and his perfect obedience, his performance. For the Christian, we're not in the courtroom on trial. Why? Jesus went on trial instead. In our place, condemned he stood, sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so now for the Christian, for the Christian, for those of you who are in Christ, the verdict is in. Because he already loves me and accepts me in Jesus, I don't have to do things to build up my resume anymore. I can do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people just to help them because of God's love. This is the realization that Paul came to himself. If you read Philippians 3, he was the most zealous, most religious Jew in his own opinion. And you could not out-religion Paul. And then he realized it wasn't about him or his accolades. It was about faith in Jesus that changed everything. It wasn't about religion. It's about gospel. 
I remember when I was a kid, my dad would give me various chores to do, which included things like tarring the driveway, cleaning the gutters, changing oil in the car, and lots of other things. And I, I earned a lot from doing my chores. I would earn an allowance. I would gain some skills. I would even get the satisfaction of helping my dad. But you know what I couldn't earn? His love. You know why? I already had it. I was his son. And this is where the Galatians were being led astray. Thinking that they needed to perform. Thinking that they needed to somehow achieve and earn something that they already had and could never lose. Their sonship. They were children of God. Galatians 4, 6. So how about you? How are you relating to God these days? Are you resting in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ on your behalf? Or are you anxiously toiling to prove your worth to him? Are you trusting in his sacrifice alone? Or are you trying to improve upon your status through acts of sacrificial service? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Said another way, is your hope in gospel or religion? Covenant life, may all the good works and sacrificial service that we do from the Lord come from a place of already being secure in his fatherly love for us. Not from trying to tip the scales to earn his favor to somehow win his affection. We can't get this backwards. The works we do flow from a relationship that we already have with our Heavenly Father. Ephesians 2.10. Paul goes on. Question 4, verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? He again appeals to their experience as Christians. In other words, you guys took heat for believing salvation is faith alone in Christ alone, and now you're going to change your tune? I mean, was all that suffering for nothing? While there isn't any other mention of their persecution in this letter, when we flip back again to Acts 13 and 14, we know that the unbelieving Jews showed a lot of resistance, a lot of hostility to Paul and Barnabas when they were preaching this gospel. Acts 13.45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Chapter 14, verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned the minds of the brothers. 14 verses 5 and 6, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And Paul, on the heels of that, would come back and encourage the Galatians to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. A lot of intense 
physical persecution, spiritual persecution came against Paul and Barnabas. It came with believing and sharing in this message. And you know what? Galatians 6.12, we learned something interesting. Galatians 6.12 tells us that the motive of these bewitchers, at least one of them, these Judaizers, was this. Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 6, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. All throughout the early church, to identify with Jesus would come at a cost. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution comes in all various forms and levels of intensity. Do you remember our sister Sydney's testimony a few weeks ago? How God saved her at the airport terminal? I forget the... I forget the actual number, but she stood up here and she shared how God rescued her from her sin, from her own futile efforts to try to earn favor with God. And after placing her faith in Jesus, this is what she said, and I quote, ever since then, a lot has changed in my life. I lost a lot of friends. My family didn't understand, and it was very hard. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Paul is saying to the Galatians here in chapter 3, verse 4, you have carried the marks of a true Christian, but if you don't believe in faith alone, in Christ alone, you've taken your lumps for nothing. I mean, what were you being persecuted for? Being a fake Christian, if indeed that was the case, or as Paul says, if indeed it was in vain. See, Paul didn't believe it was all for naught, that there was hope for the spell of these bewitchers to be broken through repentance. So just a couple questions for us. Consider your life, even over the last several weeks, maybe months, have you ever, are you receiving any persecution for your faith in Jesus, at least that you know of? And if not, why might that be the case? Are you making compromises in your lifestyle or in the content of your conversations to maybe soften the edges just a little bit? I want you to know there is grace for you this morning to turn from your sin, to turn from shrinking back in fear and for being courageous and making a stand for Jesus and to let his light shine through you and to be faithful in your post with your family, at your place of work, with your neighbors. And if you are receiving heat for loving the Lord and you are feeling weary and isolated, rejected, I want you to know there is an intimacy with Jesus that is formed in this kind of affliction. And I pray that a big part of you leaning into him would be leaning into this body here at Covenant Life to find help and prayer and encouragement for the days ahead. Paul concludes his barrage of questions with a question similar to the first question, but with a little extra spice. 
Question five, verses five and six. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? In God's ministry to the Galatians, through Paul, people were physically healed like the cripple in Lystra, Acts 14.8. But it primarily was a ministry where the Holy Spirit brought eternal life and joy. Paul asks them, did this come from religious works or from hearing with faith? You received the power of the Holy Spirit because you believed. You didn't do anything. Paul reminds them that it's through faith that one is made right with God. And to make his point, Paul brings up Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. This is the spicy part. Because what's intriguing is that the Judaizers were using Abraham to support their argument for circumcision. For faith plus works. And Paul, in other words, is saying, these guys, they think they know Abraham's testimony, but they don't. If we go back to Genesis, the beginning, it was in chapter 12 of Genesis that God makes his promise to bless Abraham. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Later in chapter 17, Abraham and his descendants would be commanded to to be circumcised as a sign of God's covenant. This is what it says in Genesis 17.10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. This cutting away of the foreskin would signify the need to cut away sin from the heart. It would point to the need for a a deep spiritual cleansing. And putting these two passages together, the Judaizers, their basic argument was this. If you Gentile Galatians want to share in the promised blessing of Abraham, then you got to be like Abraham and be circumcised. And Paul says, not so fast. There's something that happened between Galatians, Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, and it's called Genesis 15. You see, God had made this promise in chapter 12 to bless Abraham and his descendants And some time had passed. Abraham and Sarah were getting very old with no children. And God said, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Verse 15, 5 and 6. 14 years before Abraham was circumcised. 14 years before. This is what the word says. And he brought, the Lord brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. It was hearing with faith that made him righteous. Romans 4 is one of the commentaries on Galatians 3. And this is what Paul says there in verse 9. For we say faith was credited to Abram as righteousness. How then was it credited? 
while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. This is the point. God's blueprint for relationship with his people will, would always be and will always be on the basis of faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. Much more could be said about Abraham. Much more will be in the weeks ahead uh, with some of the other preachers coming up here. But to close our time, I just wanted to step back and just consider what we've heard and where we're putting our trust. In many ways, our passage this morning has juxtaposed relating to God through faith versus works, gospel versus religion. What God has done, what we try to do. The great reformer Martin Luther rightly said that as sinners, we are prone to pursue a relationship with God in one of two ways. The first is religion. And the second is gospel. The two are antithetical in every way, and this is why. Religion says if we obey God, then he will love us. The gospel says that it is because God has loved us through Jesus that we can obey. Religion says that the world is filled with good people and bad people. The gospel says that the world is filled with bad people who are either repentant or unrepentant. Religion says that you should trust your own works as a good moral person. The gospel says that you should trust in the perfect, sinless life of Jesus because he alone is the only good and truly moral person who will ever live. The goal of religion is to get from God such things as health and wealth, insight, power, and control. The goal of the gospel is not the gifts God gives, but rather God as the gift given to us by grace. Religion is about what I have to do. The gospel is about what I get to do. Religion sees hardship in life as punishment from God. The gospel sees hardship in life as sanctifying affliction that reminds us of Jesus' sufferings and is used by God in love to make us more like Jesus. Religion is about me. The gospel is about Jesus. Religion leads to an uncertainty about my standing before God because I never know if I've done enough to please God. The gospel leads to a certainty about the standing before God because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross on my behalf. Religion ends in either pride because I think I'm better than other people or despair because I'm continually falling short of God's commands. The gospel ends in humble and confident joy because of the power of Jesus at work for me, in me, through me, and a lot of times in spite of me. CLC, praise God for his gospel of grace. May we never get over it, add to it, Drift from it, but let us stand in, rest in God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the praise of his glorious name in Tampa and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray.